with you guys and uh, even more excited to see how God is going to work in the next few years in your families and in your churches, not just for children who need a mom and a dad or a foster family or a casa or an advocate or for kids around the world, but how by loving these kids, you, your church and your family will be what we like to call the visible gospel. So before I begin, I'd like to just take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to be the one that leads our evening, if you don't mind. Lord, we just thank you so much for your grace, and we thank you for the sound of these children. Lord, it reminds me in, in Matthew when you were in the temple, and, and it was the children that were shouting Hosanna. And you said that it was through the mouths of babes that the glory would be given to yourself, Lord, and that's exactly what happened then. And, and we pray, Lord, that tonight through this discussion of of what orphan ministry, gospel-driven orphan ministry looks like in the church, that, that likewise that these voices would reflect you and your love for us and how you, it was not that we loved you, but that you first loved us. I pray, Father, that you would just lead us by your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to just uh, get out of the way. I pray that this would be all about you and that your spirit would empower everything that's said here tonight and that each person would hear what you want them to hear what you're leading them to do, what your invitation is for them and their church and their family. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, as uh, Josh said, uh, my name's Paul Pennington, and Robin and I lead a ministry called Hope for Orphans. Uh, we actually started Hope for Orphans on September the 10th, 2001. I called my boss. I just had the best year of business uh, I'd ever had. Uh, we had adopted five of our six kids, and uh, we felt like God was leading us to get involved in supporting churches, and, and in the beginning, just around adoption. And so I called and quit my job. They thought I was crazy. The next day was 9-11, and I thought I was crazy. Uh, and that was when we began. And for the last 15 years, we've been involved in supporting churches throughout the United States in this thing called orphan ministry. And in the last several years, we've been working in other countries. Uh, I just got back two weeks ago from Cuba. We're working with the church in Cuba. We've been in Guatemala, in Korea, in Ukraine, in Honduras, and a lot of other places. And it's amazing to me how God has worked through loving children without a mom and a dad to demonstrate who he is and to bring the good news to people who would have never otherwise had it. But first, I'd like to just, uh, before we talk about what that looks like in the local church, uh, I just thought I'd show you a picture of my family, if we've got that. Uh, Robert and I, as I mentioned, have six kids, uh, one bio, and five came through adoption. I told him this morning that our biological daughter complains, why did she have to get the bad DNA? And, uh, and we have 13 grandchildren and uh, one's in heaven now. And when Robin comes up, she'll share a little bit more about our family. Before I begin my part of this time with you uh, about how God is using the church and why he's using the church and what that can mean uh, to just one child at a time, I thought that I would uh, introduce you to our son, Noah. Of our six kids, our youngest is Noah. And Noah is a 20-year-old that graduated from Texas A&M uh, there you go. In December, y'all are going to really like this video. <laughs> and uh, our other son, Ethan, is a, goes to Texas. He's a senior. And anyway, uh, Noah was born with a, a rare uh, congenital issue called Holtorum. 
And uh, anyway, you'll, and you'll understand more what that means in a minute, but uh, last year was the 60th, I'm sorry, the 50th anniversary of international adoption from Korea. And Noah actually had the, the privilege to speak to all the people in Seoul by video that were there. And one of the things that Noah wanted to talk about was not just how things had worked out in his life through God's grace, but he wanted to talk about what the responsibility of the church is. And even though you'll see Korean writing at the bottom, and he's talking to the Korean church, in reality, my argument is he's talking to all of us, okay? So here's Noah. One more sound. My name is Noah Pennington. I was born in Daegu City, South Korea in 1996. And I was adopted by my family in Texas 18 months later. Growing up in a large family, especially with a lot of them being adopted, it can be crazy at times, but it, it's a wonderful blessing that I've been able to experience. I was born with something called Holtorum Syndrome, and my birth mother was in a way shocked when she found out. Because of the culture surrounding people with disabilities in South Korea, my birth mother didn't want me to grow up in an environment where people would be prejudiced towards me and she wanted me to go to America so that I would have the best chance at a um, successful life. Today I am 17 years old and I am a junior at Texas A&M University and I get up each morning, I drag myself out of bed, I go to class, I try not to fall asleep, I eat and I study and I go back to bed. My goal is to go to the George Bush School here at A&M and get my master's degree in international affairs so that I can then work at Homeland Security fighting human trafficking. I have just a fire in me that burns for justice for those people who are stuck in that system. God had a plan for me when I was born and that was for me to be adopted to my family here in America. And through that, He brought me to Himself. From what I know, I probably would have grown up in an institution until I was old enough to age out, whence I will probably have been put on the street, and I would have been homeless for a while, and um, from there, there's no telling what would have happened. As of now, children going to America is one of the greatest things that could happen to them if you're disabled and an orphan in Korea, because the Koreans right now are not taking care of them. And I'm very thankful to have been adopted here and I just wish that more children like me had the opportunity to come to America. I think that first and foremost the Korean church really needs to be taking care of these children and that they need to be going into Korean homes and not just for those who are disabled, for all the orphans in Korea, that they need to be taking care of them and loving them and sharing the gospel with them and that Korean families in the church, they need to be taking these children in and that we need to just forget about the bloodlines that Christ adopted us into his family and that we need to be doing the same for orphans and that we are commanded by him to take care of them. That's Noah Pennington. He, he, uh, he did graduate, and you, in that, when we made that video, his goal was to go to the Bush, George Bush Graduate School, and that's exactly where he is today. And if you listen to what Noah said towards the end of that, he said something very direct to the people who were listening to that video. 
and mainly in the Korean church, is that he was saying it's not optional if you believe that the Bible is God's word and you believe that it's without error, uh, it's not optional to be engaged in loving the most vulnerable. We have a, actually a partner in Korea who's a wonderful pastor. His name is Pastor Eddie Byun. And I love what he says. He says, when you begin to read the Bible through the lens of vulnerable people, what you soon realize is that the more vulnerable a group of people are, the more valuable they are to God. And Noah says at the end of his talk that the church should be the one leading and making a difference for the lives of these kids. And likewise, here in the United States, we believe that. Let me just ask a question. How many of you here tonight have been engaged in direct adoption, orphan care, foster care ministry? I'm wondering kind of where we are. So some of you have, but most of you are, are wanting to learn. That helps me. Uh, those of you who raised your hands, you're probably familiar with sort of the linchpin verse for this movement. It's James 127, which is pure and undefiled religion. I like to say worship is to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And if you think about that, if God's definition of true worship is loving orphans and widows and aliens, we have to ask the question, how are we doing? And for most places we go, they're not doing as well as we would like to be. And that's what we're here to talk about tonight. One of the things that people don't know from a biblical perspective is that over 40 times in God's word to both Israel and the church, he speaks directly to these three groups of people. Why would he keep talking about orphans and widows and strangers? It's because of, their, of how their perceived value is seen by the culture, much less those who are coming from a non-biblical worldview, atheists and communists and such. But it's also a picture of the spiritual reality that came about because of the fall. And one of my favorite passages that kind of illustrates the importance of this is in Deuteronomy 24 and 19. I think we may have it for the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And it says this, when you reap your harvest, he's speaking to Israel here, when you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten the sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, and listen to this, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Isn't that wonderful? And the message for us in the 21st century is, is if you want your church to be blessed, or if you personally as a family want to be blessed, be involved in loving the most vulnerable people. Okay, uh, let me just kind of lay my, is, I've heard Matt Chandler say this, let me just lay my cards out on the table here at the beginning. We at Hope for Orphans believe that ministry flows through the local church. That's what we see in the, in the Bible. Secondly, the, the, the church has the mandate and has the anointing and has the, the power, the supernatural power through the Spirit to make a difference in the lives of, of a lost world, much less orphans and widows and such. And so our bottom line premise is this, that God's answer for the orphan crisis is the local church. And we have seen that over the last 15 years in many, many ways played out, but it, it usually comes back to a few basic things that I want to talk about tonight. Let's talk about starting orphan ministry in your church for just a moment. Uh, a few years ago, this is going to seem like shameless propaganda here, but we wrote a book called Launching Orphan Ministry in Your Church. Very creative title, right? And uh, 
And in launching Warfare Ministry in your church, uh, we were trying to provide a blueprint for folks to begin ministries in their local church for these reasons. The first thing that I learned traveling around the United States and talking about this is that I can't think of one church in 15 years that I've ever been to where there wasn't what I like to call a sleeper cell. <laughs> a group of people who got in touch them either through foster care, adoption, direct orphan care, or perhaps as a CASA, who, who knew that this was the heart of God, knew their church could be making a difference, but they weren't exactly sure what to do. Every single place I've been, there are people like that. And probably almost everyone here tonight is here because you're one of those people. Identifying those people, bringing those people together, and empowering and equipping and praying for those people is the first, first and most important step, really. And in our book, Launching Orphan Ministry in Your Church, we talk about eight steps to launching orphan ministry in your church. And I'm not going to go through those right now because of the amount of time we have. But let me just mention a couple of things. In the eight steps of launching orphan ministry in your church, one of the things that we have found and we, we believe is this. Most people in the American church uh, have a tendency to think the paid staff, or at least the elders and the deacons, are the ones that do most of the heavy lifting and do the work. And there's an endless supply of people who want to go to the pastor and tell them that they've got a great idea and then they can't expect the pastor to do it. Let me tell you something. Your pastors don't need any more ideas. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the most beat up, wore out people that you can possibly meet. What they need is people who want to be led by God, empowered by the Spirit, and to be the hands and feet of Christ themselves. And, and what we teach people and what we encourage you to do is that as you seek God through prayer and you bring your core group together, that you begin to understand what is God's invitation for our church. And through that, you develop a plan that you believe God's put on your heart. We actually teach people, lay leaders, how to build a strategic plan for their church, develop it, and then they go to the pastors and the leadership, and essentially all they do is ask for their blessing, their feedback, their wisdom, and to pray for them. But they don't ask them to execute, or in most cases, even to pay for any of it. When that happens, most pastors I've met over the last 10 to 15 years almost fall over unconscious <laughs> because they aren't used to people doing, taking an approach to ministry like that. But we've seen this model work out. We estimate that we've helped over 3,000 churches to follow this model and to execute. Another thing that's a key thing we've learned in the launch and the startup process is you, you need to walk before you run. That's common wisdom, but let me tell you, when you get a group of passionate people who've adopted from, from Guatemala and China and foster care and who, who are CASA, they all, they all have a passion and they all have different ideas about what you should do. And, and sometimes that can get confusing. And, and what you have to do is ask through God's grace to understand where do you want us to start? And I'll talk about what some of those options will be in just a minute. But it's good to focus. It's kind of like digging the hole for the, the fence post. You start with a small hole and then you get to a bigger hole for that post to fit in, right? The next thing I would point out about launching orphan ministry in your church is that I said it can look a thousand different ways. But in every church we've ever worked with, it's primarily three channels of ministry. The first I would call adoption. Uh, there are, are churches where almost everything they do revolves around families who God calls, not families who want to do it for the wrong reason, 
or who want to, who are motivated by selfish desire, but those who, in obedience to God, are called to adopt, uh, supporting them in that role through education, through support groups, through financial support, things like that. The second channel is foster care. Uh, I heard tonight we've got 170-something kids in Brazoria County that are waiting right now. We have 15,000 kids in Texas right now who need a mom and a dad. Most people in the church don't know that when a child is taken out of their home in Texas because it's no longer safe to be there, that there's not enough homes, much less advocates for them before the court. One of the easiest ways that a church can get started in foster care is to ask the question, are any of you, especially those who've had some life experience and been parents, uh, would you be willing to be a court-appointed special advocate for that child? Amazing opportunity and easy on-ramp. The third that we see in most churches is what I call orphan care. Uh, increasingly at Hope for Orphans, we're working more with the church outside the United States because 98% or more of the orphans in the world will never come to a family in the United States. They're just not coming. And so it made sense to us that if we can serve the church where most of the kids live, that's a more sustainable, higher return on kingdom investment approach. And so that's why we're working in Cuba and all those places I told you. Uh, Americans tend to think in a Western sort of way, that, hey, I'd like to go build an orphanage. But if you think biblically, what kids need is not a building to be warehoused. What kids need is a mom and a dad. That's the biblical model. And when we work with the church where the kids live, it's amazing. When I, when I went to Cuba for the first time about 16 months ago, I visited five seminaries. The most, some of the most wonderful believers I've ever met in my life. And I asked them, had any of them ever been to an orphanage? Every single professor looked down at the floor. Not one of them had ever been. And, and when I began to talk to them about it, they, they, in fact, what they told me was the only thing they could think to say was the government handles that. Well, in foster care in Texas and with orphans in Havana, what I've learned is the government makes a very poor parent. Bottom line. And, and, God, and it was the church... It was the church of Jesus who was the one that reached out. In fact, at the beginning of the church in Acts, during the time of Acts, I read that when the Christians were being uh, martyred in the Colosseum and, and murdered for entertainment, did you ever wonder what happened to their children? They went to Christian families. And some of those families, the historian wrote, that one member of the family would not eat a meal once a week so that the orphan in their home could eat. It was an out part of their family. And another, guy, another Roman historian wrote, interesting thing about these Christians, they pay their taxes and they'll take other people's children. <laughs> so this is our DNA, it's not the government. And so how churches can be engaged with kids around the world is the third channel. Okay, I want to finish and talk about what are the modes and the kinds of ministry that can take place through those three channels. Okay, next slide. The first mode is prayer. Uh, I... I Actually, I was talking with a couple today that was probably just a little bit older than us, and they were saying, you know, we're probably past the point where we can adopt. They probably wouldn't let us foster, or, you know, foster or anything like that. What, what, are, what are things that we can do? Is there anything that we can do? Amazingly, one of the first churches that we ever worked with at Hope for Orphans was in Arkansas, and it was an old Baptist church that was 100 years old, but it was kind of on the downswing, and they had about 120 people there, and the average age was about 75. They launched adoption and orphan ministry in their church. And you know what they did? They started praying because they thought prayer really makes a difference. 
And as they started praying, they started learning about kids in their area that needed a mom and a dad. And they started getting pictures. And they started praying for the children in those pictures. And then they felt led, you know, where, where, and they started talking to people in the community. They would advocate and show those pictures. Kids started getting families because these people who thought they couldn't do anything believed that God could still use them. Prayer is always the beginning of any of these ministries. You can meet physical needs. There's a hundred different ways to meet physical needs. Uh, in foster care, uh, most, part, most regions in Texas have things called rainbow rooms. Anybody know about the rainbow rooms? Never heard of it. Check it out. Rainbow rooms are places where, where supplies, educational, backpack. M most kids in foster care, it's like unbelievable to think they could ever have a suitcase. I know one church in California whose whole job was to get suitcases for kids in foster care, staying in foster homes, so they didn't have to carry from home to home everything they own in a trash bag. You can't imagine how much it, how it makes you feel about yourself when you get rid of the trash bag and you just have a simple suitcase. There's lots of physical needs in foster care. Uh, in, in, uh, around the world, uh, you know, it's, it's endless. Uh, here's another simple idea. When we first got started, we've got a ministry partner in, in Dallas called Orphan Outreach. And they had a, a simple idea. It was called Shoes for Orphan Souls. And they go around the world, and most orphans have never had a brand new pair of shoes in their life. And we took a team from Family Life, which we were part of, to Guatemala. And we took all these brand new pairs of shoes, and we went to orphanage after orphanage. And these kids, and what was so amazing, somebody came up with the idea. They, took, they had all the little girls line up. They painted their toenails. They washed their feet before they did that. They washed their feet. They paint. I, didn't, I didn't know how to do that. I don't paint toenails. But other people painted their toenails. And then they gave them some new socks. And they went over and picked out a brand new pair of shoes. Now that doesn't sound like much to you. But for them, that was an incredible thing. And they couldn't understand why did these Americans come here and do this? Why do they love us? And that led to the opportunity to share about Jesus and the gospel with them. And one of my favorite pictures I took was at the, at the their little gym thing was the pile of all the old dirty shoes that didn't fit that had gotten thrown away. And that's, that's an example of how you can meet physical needs in a simple way that can be life-changing. Financial assistance. There's somebody here tonight who God probably is calling to adopt, maybe internationally. And you're, you're thinking, and the husband especially is thinking, how in the world are we ever going to afford that? What I've found out through 15 years of this is that when God calls you to adopt the least of your worries is the money he's more than able to provide the money I wish I had time to tell you stories but one of the ways that he does it is he provides through the people of God within the church in our church we have a, an adoption financial assistance program that is a part of just our local church in Austin called Austin Stone Education, awareness, and recruitment. At Hope for Orphans, we, this is kind of where we fit in a lot. We create content to help local churches to provide adoption education. Uh, we have a new resource that we just launched, and I'm just going to show it if you're interested. Uh, we launched this two months ago. It's called Rooted is Gospel-Driven Parenting for Adopted Families, and it features people like Paul Tripp and others. And this is a really important piece that a church can do to provide before and after adoption biblical gospel-driven training so that families taking at-risk kids know what to expect. Robin's going to talk more about that in a moment. And the, and the last thing is, is support ministry. Uh, there's just so many ways that you can, as a church, be a part of supporting at-risk kids and vulnerable and waiting children. Um, 
For example, in Cuba, my dream is this. There are thousands of house churches in Cuba. There are hundreds of Baptist, uh, Pentecostal, uh, independent sort of evangelical churches. What does it look like if two or three hundred churches in America were available to serve the church in Cuba, church to church for two or three years, and to understand what their needs were, not just for serving orphans in the orphanage near them, but the at-risk functional orphans whose mom and dads are, are nowhere to be seen, they're alcoholics, and they pretty much are raising themselves. That's a kind of support that's life-changing where one church can make a difference by serving another church. So these are the five modes that work through the three channels. And, and like I said in, in our book, Launching Orphan Ministry in Your Church, we develop each of those concepts and what that looks like in order. Okay, that's a quick overview, and hopefully that gives you some ideas, and we'll talk more during Q&A time. But I wanted to ask Robin to come up and to talk uh, just for a few minutes about what does it look like in the local church in terms of support, that fifth mode, for families called to adopt and are calling to, being called to adopt kids that I would call uh, high-risk kids. Kids who are coming from really tough, traumatic, neglectful, abusive places. And so Robin has done a lot of work in that area, and I wanted to ask her to share a little bit about what that looks like with you. Well. Will you let me know my time? Yeah. Well, it's really wonderful to be here. We um, don't get the opportunity very often anymore to talk directly with churches. And um, that was kind of how we started in the beginning. And we really love it. And it helps us to remember why we do what we do. Um, you can see my topic is the safe church. And you would think, well... Explain to me what that looks like. And I deal with families who are struggling. I deal with families who have adopted and wanted to do a good thing, wanted to follow the Lord and be obedient. And they bring home children, and it is way beyond what they had anticipated. And the next slide, um, we talk about what's changed in adoption. And this is just really in the last, you know, not even 20 years it used to be that it was infertile people adopting. And you still have some of that, but the movement that's happening in the church involves a lot of other people that are not infertile. And so it, it also used to be infants and toddlers that were adopted. And so you rarely had major problems with children that young, because by the time you, when you start off with them that young, by the time they get older and have problems, you already love them so much that you just roll with it and keep going. When you bring in a 14-year-old that you don't know and it's tearing your family apart, it's very different. And um, so now the children that are available, um, there are very few young children available anymore. And I know there you know, are instances where people are able to adopt infants, but that's not that typical anymore. And um, because, because of abortion, and because of single moms parenting, which is a good thing for moms to be parenting their own children. But you're now with older children and special needs children. And so that has really changed the landscape of adoption. I think we've been behind in um, 
recognizing that there is a wave coming that is going to be significant for the church because so many families um, have adopted and, and we that's how I got into this initially I never ever planned on helping struggling families and that was probably the last thing that I would have ever thought that I would be involved in and people would come to our initially the first few years we did um, workshops that were called if you were mine and we do have that out there and we now have it on DVD and people would use it you know for a Sunday school program or they would use it for a weekend conference and people would adopt and then they would contact us by email and say we adopted and this has been the hardest thing we've ever done we don't know what to do you know the wheels have fallen off and so I started working with families and that's where I've gotten a really close view of what's happening in homes and um, more of the kids now are coming from abuse neglect and hurt um, more at-risk kids, which, you know, I think we all are aware of that. And um, I think that there, the, the movement within the church now, you know, and we've watched it the whole way through. When we first started, people were like, man, adoption, I never thought about that. I'm not infertile, but I never realized there were kids needing homes, and they were jumping in. Well, now um, it has become, and those, y'all are not old enough to know, but like in the 80s, um, it was kind of the, the litmus test for how committed you were if you would consider homeschooling your children. You know, and it was like, oh, wow, if you're really committed. And I homeschooled my kids, so I'm not saying negatives about that. But we also didn't have social media at that time. And now, you know, you see all your friends on Facebook and you see them on Instagram and they're, you know, going through their adoption process. And, and it, it's something everybody kind of wants to jump on the bandwagon. It's really dangerous. Because if you notice in scripture, it says that we're to care for orphans. It doesn't necessarily say that we're to adopt all orphans. We're to care for them. And caring for them looks like many different things. And I think one of the problems that we have is that we believe that those who are adopting are on the A team. Those who are doing all the other stuff are on the B team. And that is so not true. That if you're a CASA, if you are a a respite family, if you are um, Sunday school workers who have a place for these kids that are struggling to be able to make it in your church, those things are huge. And so there is not one thing that's more important and more needed than another. Um, the, the last thing on this, what's changed, and this is, it, this is a whole new arena for adoption, is relinquishment from an adoptive family who can no longer parent that child and they relinquish to another family and sometimes it's called second adoption or second chance adoptions which I don't like the second chance adoption thing but that it, those are on the rise and um, those are mainly the families that I work with and one of the things about that I think that people don't realize that that is an opportunity to adopt that there are children um, all across the country who for one reason or another cannot stay in their home and sometimes it's not necessarily the the child or the family it's what happened when the child and the family got together and that in different dynamics the child can do really well and the family can um, be able to heal the initial family so um, and we'll talk about that a little more in a minute on the next um, slide, we're talking about implications. And, you know, I was saying at lunch to um, 
some friends here that um, we, we do need better pre-adoption training and we're trying to do that through our new program, Rooted. But honestly, it's like pre-marriage counseling. And you can go to pre-marriage counseling a whole lot and you can do all the workbooks and all that, but nobody believes it's going to be them that's going to need all this counseling because it's going to be different with you. And you're not going to have these same problems because you love each other so much and it's going to look different. And that is so similar to what happens with adoption. And every family I work with tells me, yeah, we knew about all the pre-adoptions. We did it, but we never thought that we would struggle because we've been really good parents with our biological kids. We have a great marriage, and it just didn't stick that, you know, this could be me. And I'm telling you, it could be you. And I work with families every day that are great parents. Um, I have met some amazing, amazing people with um, the work that I do, and, and it hasn't worked. And so that's something that you really need to be aware of, and that to be honest about what your family really can handle and what they can't. And one of the things that, um, and I don't have this up there, but one of the things that I have found with families is that often with the mom, there can be past trauma that isn't really dealt with. And when you bring a child in, there is something that happens and that stress level rises in all of those past traumatic things that mom may not have dealt with. And those include uh, prior abortions, um, sexual abuse that the mother dealt with in her own childhood, and um, eating disorders, those type of things. And women won't make that connection. I would not have made that connection. But somehow when you bring this other stress into the home, those things can rise to the surface. So those things need to be dealt with beforehand. And you need to really go to the Lord with that, get counseling with that, get your spouse um, on board with you. And a lot of the issues post-adoption can be addressed if, if you will address that before you bring a child into your home. Um, the other implication is the culture of support, not judgment in the church. And up until the last two years, almost every family I worked with no longer went to church. And they would tell me that not only did the church not have a way to be able to care for their child while they were there, um, because it took one-on-one -on -one to be able to deal with this child, but that they felt like that they were judged. And it is really easy to look at another family and to ha even to have their child for a couple of days while they go out of town and to think, I don't really see the problem. You know, this is, it, it seems like it's going well and it seems pretty easy. Um, and children do that. I mean, it looks totally different when you're with a child for a very short time than when you are with them day after day, night after night, and they know your buttons, they know how to push them, and, you're, and it's totally different than when you're just with a child for a short time. I even see that as a grandmother. I've got my two girls, or my older two, one has seven kids and the other has six, and their, you know, their moms will be saying, oh, this is just so hard, and it's just driving me crazy. Well, they come to my house, and I mean, it's, but I know not to judge anything by that because I have lived through that with a child 
that, that we adopted, and it could have just as well been my biological child, but the behaviors, the charming, you know, um, sweet child that people saw elsewhere was not what we saw at home. And so uh, be, being understanding of that and, and knowing that your church needs to be a place where people can share and they can be honest and they can um, know that they're not going to be judged and that you really want to help, whatever that looks like. Um, adjusting expectations in wraparound families, that's just huge. Your expectations, it's the same with marriage. You know, we all go into marriage of what it's going to look like, and most of us could say it was very unrealistic. And I think with these kids... Um, you really have to have expectations that are realistic. And I probably go too much the other way when I'm working with families, especially when they're taking a child that has come from a disruption or dissolution of an adoption and helping them to see how hard this is going to be. And then when they come back and a few of them will say, God, it wasn't anything like you said. It's been so much easier. And I'm like, yes. Because that's the way it should be. When we encourage people and tell them, oh, this is so wonderful. And when you watch videos. And this morning here at church, we showed the video of us bringing home our fourth child from Korea. And it just looks so neat, you know. And you just, just want to do it too. And, and I think that we have to have expectations that are realistic. Um, and then, again, sometimes relinquishment, secondary relinquishments happen. And in that, I can tell you that I have seen God work in ways that I, I, I have become almost addicted to seeing God work in a situation that I think, oh, Lord, you can't do this. I can't tell you how many children I've thought, there will not be a family for this child. And it, this is too difficult. And there's a family. And that family is exactly the right family. And that child does well. That's not all the time. There are some children who just aren't capable of being able to be in a family and with the intimacy of relationships in a family, but that's very rare. So, um, let me see. Um, I'm going to talk next, if you'll go to the next slide, um, about special needs ministry in your church. Because if you're going to encourage families to do foster, and if you're going to encourage families to adopt, that you need to be prepared as a church for what that's going to look like for you. Because these kids are not going to be like kids who everybody just, you know, you've been parenting them, you know how to behave, they know how to, you know, respond in the correct way in a classroom. And um, I, interestingly, this story that I'm going to tell you is, that's our oldest grandson, um, Jack. And Jack was born with uh, five heart defects and had open heart surgery as a three-day-old. And um, he said he's had multiple surgeries now, and he's on the autism spectrum. Um, but he's uh, he's has Asperger's. He's very very bright. But um, when he was little, I mean, you would think that he was so bratty that somebody must not have disciplined this child. Somebody, you, you know, you would just think um, this child's parents. Where are they, and why have they not done the things they should do with him? And um, Jack, he's now he's now in high school, and he's just one of the neatest kids that, and not just because he's my grandson, he is just a really amazing kid with extreme compassion. And every church they went to, they were military, and so they'd get transferred all over. And every church that they would go to, after a while, they'd say, we really can't deal with him in the classroom. We don't have enough workers for that. And, and being military, you know, it was every couple of years they would be moving. And my daughter just, I mean, grieved over that. And 
um, they came to us, they came to visit us in Austin. They now live in Texas. They're out of the military. And this was about five years ago. And we go to the Austin Stone, and it's a big church. And so when Jack said the first time they came, he's like, no, I want to go to Sunday school. And I was like, oh, don't you want to sit with us? You know, he was like, no, I really want to go to Sunday school. So my daughter dropped him off at Sunday school, and I kept waiting for the number on the screen to come up to know we need to go get him because something's wrong. And it didn't happen. So we went to pick him up. My daughter went up there, and she was giving him her number to pick him up, and I was standing with her. And... Um, the head of all the Sunday school came out and um, he said he looked at me first and shows he was a really smart man he said are you Jack's mother and I'm like no I'm the grandmother (laughs) and then he looked over at my daughter and she said I'm Jack's mother and um, and I thought here it comes and um, the church that we love is going to now tell us that our grandson can't come back. I mean, we have been through this many times. And the guy comes over and he says, have you ever heard of sensory issues? And my daughter said, yeah, he he has them. And he said, well, I just wanted to make sure you knew because we noticed when it got loud, he really had a hard time with that and would hold his hands over his ears and we took him out. And then we got got a worker just to come in and sit with him. And he said, we want you to know how much we want him here. And we want you to know that we are here for you. And my daughter and I walked out with Jack crying because we could not believe that a church knew about sensory issues. They knew how difficult he was. And they were wanting to do whatever it took on their part to be able to have him come and be a part. And it was kind of interesting because we did it. Paul Tripp came to our church and did a parenting uh, session. And Paul and I went just to see all the mistakes we had made. There wasn't really any purpose in us going at this point. And uh, my daughter was there and Jack went into the child care. And I went out to go to the bathroom and I see a policeman over there. And I'm like, oh, no. And I knew before I looked. And it was Jack. And the policeman had to be called in. He was outside directing traffic, and I don't even know at this point what happened. But the good news for those of you who have a child like Jack is that he's an amazing kid now. None of those issues anymore. Begs to go to church. And and, and in who Jack is, his favorite thing is to go to Chinese church. Although they don't go there, he goes on Friday night and loves Chinese church, and the people love him. And he loves going, and it's and that's so typical him. And right now, everything's about Japan. He's learning Japanese, and he's going to live in Japan. And so now I, I see who was that little guy. What was going on in that mind of the five and six year old, seven year old, and what what a great kid. So if you've got one like that, don't don't worry. Things get better as they get older, and and it can be a real blessing. I know I'm running short on a. Yeah. Um, let's do the next. Uh, um, Ella Robin, the little girl there, is from India. And um, I'll tell her story real quick because I think it's an important story to hear. Um, Ella is one of the many, many kids that I've worked with where um, her family adopted her. They were an infertile couple. They were actually um, Indian themselves. And um, great, great couple just I mean they were they were a wonderful couple and ever since they adopted Ella she would not let the dad anywhere near her and she screamed night and day 
And I mean, they literally, they had her on medication. She was two and a half, not even three years old, and she was on some of the medications. They were adult um, doses because they, the doctors could not figure out, you know, how to, to get her to be able to, to adjust when she just, she had been here for, um, since she was about a year and a half old. Well, they decided at some point through their social worker, through their agency, that she, she was failing to thrive and was in the hospital because she wouldn't eat. And um, they had, in the meantime, they had two biological children. And the children were not safe with her. She was really jealous of them. So Ella Robin was adopted by another family who had eight children. And they had warned the, the new couple. They said, when she sees the dad, and the, dad, the new dad's this big old white cowboy, you know, and um, big, tall, and they said, she's going to be scared to death of you. She's not going to let you touch her. Um, when they met at an ice cream shop to meet her for the first time, she immediately ran straight to the dad. He picked her up. And it was whatever it was with the other family. It was over. And they do know that she had been in an orphanage in India. And they know that there was probably abuse there. And somehow that was transferred over to the parents that had her. And so Ella now is, um, I think she's like eight now. And she's doing really well. She's a little quirky, you know. But a lot of kids are. Most of them really are. And, um, but, but she's doing really well. And so um, the dad, we have a video of this story on our website. And he talks about how don't be afraid because a child could not make it with a first family. That there is not um, a great, great possibility that they will do really well with different dynamics. Okay, and then um, the next slide. Paul already talked about Rooted. Um, that's one of the things that churches are using. It's a new program we have and we've got... Vody Bauckham, Paul Tripp, we've got, um, we talk about spiritual warfare, we talk about um, alternative medicine, we talk about um, uh, male leadership in the home, we talk about um, all the things that people don't want to talk about right now. We talk about husband and wife's roles in the home and how important it is as a foundation for these kids. Because if you have any issues going on in your marriage, which I don't know who doesn't, um, when you bring kids in, it can, it can pull at your marriage so quickly. And um, so Rooted is something that we really feel like is needed. We have a lot of agencies. We hadn't really counted on that. Adoption agencies are using it. The state of Texas is reviewing it to use for their foster care training. And, um, and churches are using it. So that's something you might want to check into and even have your church purchase it and then let the families within it you know, do a class or use it at home or whatever. And, um, yeah. Oh, we have a trailer? Okay. Um, the rooted trailer. Can y'all, do y'all have that ready?
important thing with me and my children is not necessarily them finding their way to me, but them finding their way through me to God. That's what my parenting relationship is ultimately all about. It is God's plan that the invisible adopting grace of God would make, be made visible by people of grace who, who live with the same hospitality and give the same grace that they've been given to children who need grace. You're going to have sleepless nights. You're going to, you're going to be exhausted, but at the very same time, in a very strange way, you're going to experience a comfort because you know that you're doing something that's counting. And if you love your families well, and if you lead your families well, they're going to understand that God loves them with a full heart. They're going to not just believe that God intellectually is for them. They're not just going to know that God loves them. They're going to feel that God knows them. They're going to, they're going to know the love of God in an experiential way. They'll know who your children would be. The Lord knew what your children would act like. The Lord knew the tendencies your children would have, whether they're biological or adopted. There's some studies that have looked at predisposing factors for children having troubles adapting after stressors, and they found that neglect has a stronger influence than even physical abuse. Play truly is your child's natural language of expression. It really is the way your child expresses themselves best. It really is the way your child gains understanding over their environment, over situations that happen. Just like adults need to talk out in a situation that has maybe happened or something that's bothering them, children really do play that out.